Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. There are so many ways to work on healing the world, and most of them include some element of self-examination as part of the process. One facet that doesn't get examined often enough is the role of finance in our personal and societal functioning. The thing is that the debt-based, extractive-focused, endless growth economy, which is a feature of U.S. society, is driving us surely towards a marginal existence for humanity. Today's guest, Pamela Haynes, has done deep study of the economic trends and mechanisms that are pushing our species to the edge, looking for solutions. Pamela is the co-author of a book, Toward a Right Relationship with Finance, and she's part of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting's Eco-Justice Collaborative, working with the Friends Economic Integrity Project. Pamela Haynes joins us in person today on the campus of Niagara University in New York State. Pamela, thank you so much for joining us for Spirit in Action. I'm so glad to be here. Well, part of the backstory to being here is when I contacted you some weeks ago, long before we arrived at Niagara University, I made arrangements with you. You're one of the people who had been on my radar for some time. So I set up the interview with you, and then two days before I got here, I made plans to visit my friend Sarah and stay at her house. And I said, well, so who's going to be there? And you were amongst the people. So how do you connect with Sarah and her family? I go to a Quaker meeting in Philadelphia, and we have a weekly bulletin. And one day in the bulletin, there was a note that said, a family from Florida is moving up to work in the Quaker bookstore in Philadelphia. They need a place to stay, a woman and her 11-year-old daughter. And so over the phone, Nadine and I agreed that she and Sarah would live in our house, sight unseen. And then Nadine decided she needed to be closer to the bookstore, so she moved downtown, and Sarah stayed with us during the week because she was going to a school that my son was going to. So we ended up kind of co-parenting Sarah, Nadine, and Chuck and I. The topic I invited you here for today has to do with economics, morality and integrity with respect to economics. And I'm thinking that even that shared housing with people moving up to the area has an economic integrity aspect to it. Can you put your finger on that aspect? Well, I think it has something to do with wealth, like what really constitutes wealth. And is it the money in your accounts or is it the strength of your relationships? I mean, that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but there was some additional wealth that came to both of our families as a result of that decision to do that sharing. Let's talk about wealth, Pamela, because mostly when people in the U.S. speak of wealth, what they think of is dollar signs, just like when we try to measure the GDP. In the U.S., measures of the GDP only take into account dollars spent. 
While there are a lot of other measures and indicators that one could use, I'm assuming you're exposed to a number of these alternative progress indicators, at least by your father, if not by your own training in economics. Well, yeah, I'm not formally trained in economics, but my father was an economist, so I kind of breathed the language in as a child, and I kind of felt a right to claim it. So, yes, there's money in your accounts, but there's also infrastructure and production, and there's natural resources, there's human knowledge, there's our social capacity, there's our spiritual depth. All of those things are are wealth that the, you know, the GDP just measures what it can measure, which means that it throws out everything that you can't measure, which is often what's the most important. As you said, your father was an economist, but that you're not formally trained as an economist. Somehow you must have gotten motivated to learn about this stuff. Do you want to tell the story of how you got into this exploration of wealth? You come by a kind of a strange back door. I'm not sure what story you're thinking of. One is that when my father, he was an economics professor, and when I was nine or ten, he would ask for my help with his multiple choice exam questions. So he would have an exam question, and he would share the question. He would ask me, nine or ten-year-old me, and I would say something that made sense to me as a nine or ten-year-old, and that would be one of the choices because it was sensible. It may not have been right, but it was sensible, and he recognized that. It was like valuing my mind. That was a really wonderful experience for me. I felt very respected. I was thinking of the other story that I know that you shared in a Friends Journal article about conscientious objection. Oh, yes. My friend Nadine, same friend, Sarah's mom, was working with COs, with young men writing their CO statements, and they were struggling away with how to put down what they conscientiously objected to. And she thought, everybody should be doing this. This is not limited by gender or by age. Every Quaker should have their own statement of conscience. And she said, Pamela, you should write a statement of conscience. And when Nadine tells you to do something, you know that sooner or later you're going to end up doing it. So there I sat with a blank sheet of paper or a computer screen. And to what do I conscientiously object? And the answer, in my mind, it should have been war, right? Because that's what Quakers traditionally write in their statements. So I sat there and I thought, no, I really, really object to an economy that's based on materialism and greed and exploitation. That seems to me more evil than war. And that's what ended up in my statement of conscience. Did that get you to the point of joining the Friends Economic Integrity Project? Or were there perhaps many steps between that realization and your activism with that group? Well, there were many years, but I think it's always been really important to me just noticing how economics impacts our lives and how scientists, how economists try to obscure the realities of what's going on. They're trying to make it into a really mathematical, scientific, abstract, non-human discipline, but it's really totally human. And being clear that this is a human endeavor that we're engaged in, and, and it's deeply influenced by values, has just been important to me for as long as I can remember. Are these views that you would have held in common with your father as an economist? I assume he learned Keynesian systems and all of the formulas and supply-side economics. All of those things would have been part of what he studied. Did you ever have a chance to educate him with your views, or was it his teaching that led you in the direction you followed? 
How did that interface go between your views and his? He was trained in classical economics, and the textbook that he wrote that put all six of us through college was called Money and Banking, very traditional, center-of-the-road economic discipline. However, I think that I did influence him. I think that the work that I did as a young adult in Movement for a New Society and in some of the adult education things that we did, I think that those helped to crack his thinking open a little bit. And then it was really remarkable to watch him change from the decades of teaching classical economics to starting to question some of the very basic assumptions that it was built on and becoming a very outspoken critic of a lot of those really basic assumptions by the end of his working life. It was really remarkable to watch that. It was one of the most hopeful things in my relationship with my father that I got to be part of. I'm assuming you've read parts of, or at least been influenced by or connected with, Kenneth Boulding's work. And I think that he has a lot of concepts which expanded upon traditional economic models, although he was certainly a widely known economist. What from his work has stuck with you? Well, I think the concept from Kenneth Boulding that clearly the one that has stuck with me most is the idea of a spaceship Earth, the difference between a cowboy, he called it a cowboy economy. I don't know what we would call it today. The idea that you can just expand and expand and expand and there's great frontiers and if you're courageous and smart and entrepreneurial enough, you can just keep growing and growing. And Kenneth Boulding's idea of a spaceship, the planet is actually finite. The economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the biosphere is one of the things that I really, I think captures that really well, that we have to figure out how to live on a spaceship. Boulding was really the father of this school of economics called sustainable economics or steady state, steady state economics. How can we have an economy that will continue to meet people's needs but won't be pushing the limits of the biosphere the way our current system is? One of the other things about Kenneth Boulding, and I'm not sure if any of our listeners have ever read anything that he wrote, But amongst his many writings, most of which are on economics and economic topics, are sonnets that he's written. And that's one of the beautiful things. We don't normally think of economists as being able to write sonnets, but I have a feeling that has come back to the topic of wealth. So, you said your father changed. I'm interested because the change in thinking by economists is very, very important. Economics as a hard science is really relatively new. When you go back to Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations and all that kind of thing, there's a change that happens in how we think about economics at that point. So, wealth again is the topic. Did your father change in his idea of what constitutes wealth and what he would actually teach to people and what books should I be reading to see this concretely? He definitely changed. He was going to write the book on economics and the environment back in the late 1960s. He was really hot to write that book, and I was working with him on that. I actually bought a red pencil so I could correct his drafts, yes. But then somebody else wrote the book, and he got discouraged and gave up. I didn't get discouraged. So he did not write the groundbreaking book on the relationships between economics and the environment, but he was ready. Well, you mentioned Pamela, and again, folks, we're speaking with Pamela Haynes, who is part of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. She's part of a group called the Eco-Justice Collaborative, and she's part specifically of the Friends Economic Integrity Project. 
So there's some progress that got you to the point, and you mentioned Movement for a New Society. I never participated with Movement for a New Society, and I think it had moved on to a different phase by the time I got active with Quakers. So there's a lot I don't know about it. I believe that Movement for a New Society was much larger than just Quakers. Was it communal living, and how was it structured economically? Movement for a New Society was a nonviolent social change movement. So, yes, very different from economics. So the way it worked is that most everybody had made enough money one way or the other to free up time to do social change work. That was our idea of bread labor. So that's economics. And most of us lived collectively, which kind of cut down on the expenses of housing. So that's economics. We were trying to create a context in which we could be responsible in providing for ourselves, but also to free up time to do work that was unpaid. I'm realizing now that there were no nonprofits back then. Nobody could aspire to have meaningful work in a nonprofit because they didn't exist. And in a way, I think there's some advantages to that, that we, like, we worked 20 hours a week doing whatever, and then our time was ours, and we could pursue social change the rest of the time. And that collective living helped make that possible. As you said, Pamela, you lived collectively, which is not, of course, the same as communally. Exactly what does that collectivism imply? It was often in our particular situation in Philadelphia where I was, there were big houses that could easily fit six or eight people. And so six or eight people would agree to live together and work out their common way of living. And that would be different from in different houses. It wasn't like there was one way that everybody did it. But the concept that by sharing that space, we could both get more community and have less economic need. So how wealthy was your collective? Oh, there's a lot of wealth, I would say. There was a lot of ferment, a lot of exploration of new ideas, a lot of learning about community, a lot of sense of doing things that mattered. We felt that there was a lot of meaning in our lives. I would say that that's a lot of wealth. One of the things you mentioned about it, though, was that people had amassed enough money to free themselves. There was an idea back in the 1960s, that was when there was the creation of leisure studies majors, because of the idea that we're producing such wealth, particularly with the mechanization of society, and I still think this should be true, we're producing enough so that we no longer need to work not only not 40 hours a week, not 30, we can get down to 15 hours of work per week. That was a concept that was coming along in the 1960s. You were already implementing it in Movement for a New Society in the 1970s, but somehow that got derailed. And I'm trying to figure out what in our society changed, because now it's not unusual for people to work three or four jobs, 60 or 70 hours a week, and just barely be getting by. That just doesn't fit somehow. Well, there was a really, really significant change in our economy in the late 1970s, which is around that same period of time. You think about Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, and then you think about World War II and all of the social spending that went into that war, and then you think about post-World War II and the GI Bill and the big infrastructure projects that built the highway. So there was an incredible amount of government intervention in the economy. It mostly worked to help create a strong middle class, and mostly a white middle class, but it was 
incredibly influential in creating a middle class and a sense of prosperity and upward mobility. Starting in the 1970s, there was a whole lot of things that changed. We went off the gold standard, then came Reaganomics, and the top tax tier, which was paying can you believe this? 91% above 250000 91% of your income went to taxes. That went down to 28% by the end of Reaganomics. So there was an enormous shift in how wealth was distributed and kind of pulled back to the rich. And at the same time, there's a lot of loosening of regulations. That's where the banks started to be able to do all this investing and not just banking. It was kind of like the folks, kind of like the robber barons of the 1890s, figured out how to get more and more control of the economy and then started buying elections and getting more and more and more and more and more control. A lot of the way we've been able to grow has been on debt. So there's been a need for two people to work, two-parent homes have become the norm. So it's been a very, very big economic shift that's happened mostly starting in the late 1970s. So I think that's part of the answer to your question. Could you explain to folks debt-based economics versus the alternatives to that? Most of our Western economies are based on debt. Okay, so this is right at the edge of my ability to explain because I am not an economist. I'm totally self-trained. I work in early childhood. I help child care workers get more resources into a really important and under-resourced system. So that's my job. Most money is created by banks putting loans on their books. So you go to the bank and get a loan, and then you have money because the bank wrote down in their books that you have money. If you have a loan, then you have to pay it back with interest. So more money has to be generated in the economy for you to be able to pay it back with interest. So the money system has to grow, and usually that implies that production grows and markets grow and people have to be buying more things. That's why this big advertising thing, they have to create new needs so that more production can happen, so that the system is going to grow, the interest can be paid back, and then more loans are put out, and then more interest has to be paid back. And you kind of have this ballooning system that is not really aware of, again, of the finite earth. And you've got to dig more stuff out of the ground, and you've got to put more stuff into the air, and you've got to put more crap into landfills, and it's an unsustainable thing. And it's that interest, the idea of interest is central to a monetary economy that grows. I understand that actually from the Bible going back, usury, which was defined as really charging any interest, that usury was bad, that it's evil. It's one of those things to be avoided. Whereas now a number of people would refer to themselves as Christian, it's an article of faith that interest is what you're supposed to be able to get because you let other people use your money, your wealth, and you get to charge them lots of interest. A rich person deserves labor-free income because they have money. It's a mess. We're entangled in a very, very complicated system. One of the things that was really interesting in doing some research in this is that all the basic religions had very strong prohibitions against high interest usury. And I think it's important 
There is a distinction that's useful to note between a loan that somebody can repay through increased productivity. Like if a farmer takes out a loan and knows they're going to have a harvest that will pay for the loan and give them a profit at the end, then that's not necessarily unjust or it can work that somebody's sharing some extra money and somebody else is able to use it in a way that makes their life better. But there's a kind of an extractive debt that is very, very injurious. And so one of the things that happens in our economy is that if you have more money, you can loan it out and get interest on it, and that interest gives you more money that you can then loan out and get more interest on. And then the people that you're loaning to are in debt, and then they have to take out loans to pay off their debts. They're more in debt. So you have this steadily increasing inequality that's built into the system with that kind of extractive concept of debt. So what I think you're saying is that the problem is not simply interest. Part of what I'm wondering about, you talked about the end of the 1970s. Things had changed. One of those things that was changing was interest rates. So no longer would we try and create a more level field. Them that got more, they get more. Yeah, I think interest is inherently problematic. I think we just need to get our minds around the question of, could we live without interest? That's one of the questions that's on my mind. I think that's what the steady-state economists are trying to figure out. I did an interview with George Lakey on his book, Viking Economics. Have you read that? I have. I have. That was the other thing that I was going to point out, that we now are dependent on interest for our security. Anybody who's planning for retirement is putting their money away so that their money can grow, so that they'll be safe when they're old. That's not the only possible system. So it's really interesting to think about how you might think about security without interest. So social security is not dependent on interests. Social security comes from current workers helping to pay the cost of care for older people. And taxes come out of current wages. They're not related to interest. And taxes can be used to help provide for the security of the people. But we've gotten into this system where the only way that we can think about security, if we have money, investing it so that the interest will rise and will help pay for our old age. So we're kind of caught in a system that is all around us. You can't just walk away from it, but it's not the only possible system. And that gets me back to George, which George Lakey talks about the Scandinavian countries, again, where the tax base, the people pay much higher taxes, but then the government turns around and uses those taxes to pay for people's security. That's a system that's much, much less reliant on interest. So interest is one of the issues. I think you referred kind of obliquely to another issue. One that I see is gambling. I happen to realize, I, you know, I live in Wisconsin, where at the point when I was in high school, they were just legalizing bingo. I had an English teacher who became the bingo czar for the state. That was the first step into gambling. And then there were lotteries. They grew up over the last 50 years. Before the 1970s, though, they weren't allowed. They were illegal because you couldn't have legalized gambling in the public sphere. The gamblers were the evil people, right? And now that we've made it national, and I personally think that the stock market is just another form of gambling, so you mentioned interest as an evil. I would toss in gambling as another one. Do you have a counter opinion about that, perhaps? 
No, I think that that's also one of the things that started changing in the late 1970s, because traditionally we've thought about wealth as production. You build a factory and you produce stuff that's of use and you provide it to the people and some people who have money help to build that factory. So that's very much related to meeting people's needs. But again, I'm not an economist and I'm not an economic historian, but that point at which banks' regulations started to be loosened so they didn't necessarily have to invest in loans to people who were trying to produce something or other. They could invest in securities or derivatives or mortgages or all those words that I don't really understand. So that more and more investment is going into financial things that don't really have value. And so what you're doing is you're betting on what will happen to those bundles of financial things. You're betting on what will happen to currencies. And you're betting like... There's computer programs that have you bet in milliseconds on where something will go up or down. and has nothing to do with whether that group is providing anything of value. So people make the distinction between the real economy and the financial economy. The real economy is people who are working to provide stuff that people need. And this financial thing is not real, but it ends up pulling the wealth of people because it's got to have something to start with. So it's those loans to people who then become more indebted, like the underwater mortgages. So you buy your house with not very much money, and then the mortgage ends up being bundled and betted on. That's very extractive. So it's both interest and gambling, I would say, that are both pretty evil. And that's one of the things that's really set up so many people in our country to be struggling these days. I've got one comment more to make before I fully remind people that they're listening to Spirit in Action. When I was first getting into business myself, and my business was mowing lawns and shoveling sidewalks, I did save up money in a bank, and I was able to get a massive 3% interest. These days, 3% interest on a savings account would just never happen. It doesn't happen unless you've got massive amounts of money. But credit card institutions, banks, other money movers today, they think nothing of charging 18% and even higher in interest. So something very dramatically changed in terms of how we're financially structured. We'll get back to that in a moment, but first I want to say you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org. With almost 12 years of our programs available for your free listening and download, you'll find links to our guests. So when you want to track down Pamela Haynes, look on our site for a link. Also, I want to mention that this week we happen to be recording on the campus of Niagara University in New York. We're part of something called the Friends General Conference Gathering, and I know this is being broadcast all over the United States, so I want to encourage you to visit this university. It's a beautiful spot, and it's a beautiful school, and there happens to be a concentration this particular week that I'm here of a lot of people doing great world-healing work which is what Northern Spirit Radio is about. We're trying to find ways to encourage world healing. Also on our site, there's a place to post comments. And when you visit, please do post a comment and make our communication two ways. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work that is 100% supported by your donations. Our support comes from you, not from corporations, not from the government. 
we can continue with this program because you, the listener, want to see this work continue. So please do click donate when you visit NordenSpiritRadio.org. But even more important, I want to make sure that we have alternative media in this country. Right now, some 90% of our media is controlled by just six corporations, and that's far too concentrated to allow for a wide dissemination of ideas. Support your local community radio station to help fight that tide. Start by supporting them. Stations like WIDE in Madison, KLOI on Lopez Island in Washington, KCEI right near Taos, New Mexico, KFMP in Louisville, Kentucky, our newest affiliate. All of these stations deserve your dig deep into your pocket support. And then if you've got a few shekels left, please support Northern Spirit Radio. Again, we're speaking with Pamela Haynes for Spirit in Action today. She's active with something called the Eco-Justice Collaborative, a part of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, specifically the Friends Economic Integrity Project. I want to get into integrity in just a moment, but I want to come back to the changes I mentioned. 3% interest was kind of normal on a savings account in the 1960s, and now if you get even a half a percent interest, you're doing pretty well. There's something that happened that I think most people have ignored or forgotten. I don't think we have a memory that stretches that far back. Is there a good reason, perhaps, to have interest rates change so that a bank on a mortgage or loan charges you 5 or 8 or 9% on a mortgage, but they pay you only half a percent in interest? Is there a reason that it should be that way? Well, my understanding is that a lot of that is due to the loosening of the financial regulations that has happened since the 1980s. Like those payday lenders found a little space that they could grow up in and charge people even more than 20% interest rate. And the credit card folks have fought really hard for their way to get all that interest out. So it's been those financial institutions have kept looking for places where they can make money in that kind of a way, and there haven't, the regulations have gotten looser. There's another cultural tide that has moved significantly. I think it was influenced heavily in the 1960s. I mean, I mentioned communes. Communes became a thing, and this kind of rebellion against the business world. I think the concept of the U.S. in the 1950s was business, you know, that the business of America is business. That particular phrase is from an earlier era, but there was an attitudinal change, at least on the left, shall we say, opposed to or less favorable to business norms. In the 1960s, the U.S. had just finished 20 years, 30 years of fighting communism, fighting socialism. There was an impasse, and the left became more and more opposed to capitalism, saying there's something wrong with that. Is that part of your ideas? Is it capitalism we're critiquing here, or specific tides within capitalism? There's so many names, and there's so many buzzwords, and people have so many reactions to them. I use that word, the robber barons, because that's a way of defining a type of capitalism that is without control. If you talk about markets, I think most people that I've read who seem smart to me agree that there's a place for markets. There's also a really important place for democracy. 
so who's in control? If it's corporations that are in control, I would say that's not a good thing. And that seems to be corporations and financial institutions seem to be the ones that are running our country right now. That doesn't seem like a good form, a good economic system. I'm hesitant to use the word capitalism because that just means people start fighting over whose side you're on. So I would rather talk about democracy. I would rather talk about a place for markets. I would rather talk about an opportunity for the government to address the places that markets don't handle well the way the government did in the 1930s and the 1940s and the 1950s. That's a very American way to do things. I would rather frame a discussion on those kinds of lines. However, big business did feel like they weren't getting the respect that they deserved in the late 1970s. And there were a group of people that clustered around the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and somebody who went on to become a U.S. Supreme Court justice, but I I don't want to say the name because I'm afraid I'll be wrong, who developed all those think tanks, the conservative think tanks, and poured a lot of money into those to create an alternative perspective. And that's the perspective that's now being called neoliberalism. Some people call it free market economics, but it's not really, I don't think that's a good word. I think robber baron is maybe a better one, that the people with money get to control stuff. One of the things that happened, particularly in the Quaker circles you and I travel in, there was a point in which a large percentage of Quakers were involved in business in this country. The saying has been shared widely that Quakers came to the New World to do good, and they did well. There is this history, I mean, of a lot of institutions. Barclays Bank was originally a Quaker institution. And Cadbury Chocolates, hooray for chocolate, that was a good Quaker business. For all sorts of businesses, Quakers were at the fore. I think there's been a decreasing trend among Quakers since then. Have we, and I'm particularly talking about liberal Quakers, lost our business acumen? Are we making these judgments from an anti-business point of view? I think a lot of people are. I think part of the problem is that big business has been so dominant, it's really easy to see the flaws in big business. But I think that there is a ton of room for local business, for really creative entrepreneurship, for thinking well about how to produce things that people, particularly people close around you, need and how to be able to make a living producing stuff that people need. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that, and it's pretty exciting. The question is how to create a space that allows that kind of business to flourish in a situation where big finance and big business are so dominant and so extractive and so quick to find things that they can extract profits out of, how to create and protect a space for small businesses. People are starting to think about it. It's an exciting time, in a way. I do like your description that what we need to think about is democracy. And there is definitely a tension between concentration of economic power and the maintenance of our democracy. Of course, this country didn't really start out as the kind of democracy that most of us tend to assume in these days. The reason that we have the Electoral College in the United States and the reason that we had these elections in the way that we had them is because you had to elect very knowledgeable, rich people, educated people, the educated gentry, if you will, of our country. You had to elect them so they could make good decisions on our behalf. There was a period, though, where we got to economic populism, which is no longer held in as high esteem as it was back in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. 
But there is a kind of populism right now as personified in the White House, though it isn't the economic populism of FDR. Well, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on now. There is big money and big corporations, but there's also a lot of experimentation and practice in local democracy and local economics and sustainability where the environmental issues come in. There's a very, very rich grassroots thing that's happening all over the country. If you just stop and look, there's a lot of exciting things going on. Well, the reason I invited Pamela Haynes here today, folks, is because she is part of the Friends Economic Integrity Project. So I want you to tell us, Pamela, and we really need the answer, how do we reach integrity financially? Oh, my. So I think the first thing that we do is that we notice that we can't be pure. We can't be in this country as it currently exists and aspire to be 100% pure. We have to be willing to live in the paradox of a irrational system. If all our attention goes to trying to be 100% pure about our money, then we don't have attention for anything else and it probably doesn't work and it probably separates us from most of the people in the country anyway. Part of our integrity is to notice where we're complicit. I think we have to think about our economic security in our old age as best we can. However, I think that we can always try to make a step toward greater integrity. And one of the things that I've thought a lot about is, you know, if we have our money in regular old stocks and bonds, we can move it to places that screen out negative investments. And if we've already done that, then we can put our money in places that screen for positive things. And if we've already done that, we can put some of our money into local projects that we know and see. And if we've already done that, I'm so taken by the stories that I've heard about people who've bought up the student debt of people in their families or their communities or bought up the credit card debt of people in their communities and then redone the loan repayment agreements so that there's maybe some interest on it, but certainly not as onerous an interest. So that's another step toward integrity. In terms of our liquid assets, I think a lot of people can move money into credit unions. And if people haven't already, I would just really encourage people to go find your local credit union and get your money out of that bank and put it in the credit union because the credit union is kind of like a closed economic system that sometimes you're a lender and sometimes you're a borrower and all of that money is in the service of the community and it has a board of directors and you're a member of that community by virtue of putting your money there and you can be part of the governance of that institution. That's a place that I think lines up with integrity very easily. What about things like fair trade versus free trade, concepts like that? I think you're not very excited about free trade, are you? Well, free trade is kind of built on colonialism and a history of exploitation. Like It's kind of jaw-dropping to learn how much wealth has been transferred from poor countries to rich countries under the guise of free trade. So yeah, fair trade seems like a better way to go. I don't feel like an expert at all on trade, so I'm not inclined to say too much more about that. I think a lot of people have the sense that capitalism is based on a fair judgment of an individual's own best options. What's good for me, right? I have actually tried to confront this at my personal level. When I go to a store and I see there's something that's fair trade and it costs two ninety five. 
and there's the non-fair trade version, and it costs a dollar and five. Which one am I going to buy? It's a hard decision. What does integrity, particularly from a spiritual point of view, tell us we should do in those cases? How do we inform ourselves about what is integrity in making those kinds of personal purchases? A concept that seems important to me is that of connection. If I'm connected to the folks who make those free trade products, I'm way more likely to be willing to pay that money. A lot of what's happened to us is that we're totally separated from the the history and the context of the products that we buy, so they become just numbers. If they're just numbers, then you choose a lower number, which is better for you. But if you are able to have some connection to how does that production work and who is doing it and what is their living situation and are they kind of like me? I think community is the critical thing that helps to buttress our integrity in those kinds of situations. That if we think of it's us, it's us working together to provide for the things that we all need, then it's really different from the total price in the supermarket. Does scale of economics come into your thinking in terms of integrity? I think integrity is easier when you can see people and know people. So I think scale, yeah, it becomes increasingly harder to maintain integrity when things get bigger because of that separation. And I think once you start separating from people and separating from where something started to where it ends, then it just gets harder to take a stand on what's right. If it's visible and if it's knowable and if you're connected, it's easier to do the right thing. One of the things that I've seen change, you know, I'm 63, so I've seen 63 years of progress, whatever that means on this planet. And from my youth, I saw an increasing emphasis on immediately satisfying whatever our appetites are. That could be just where you go and what you buy at a restaurant. We didn't used to eat at restaurants, fast food or otherwise, nearly as frequently as we do now. Back when I was a kid, we just didn't do that. And the housing bubble. I think the major problem of that was, I recall at one point, in certain countries at least, 50% down payment on a house was how you made a purchase of a building. By the time I was buying a house in the 1980s, 20% down was enough. And then that got down to only 10%. And eventually, the thing led up to the destruction of our housing system and the collapse economic system with the Great Recession was that people were buying houses with 0% down. Immediate gratification, satisfy your need now, you know, upsize your house. Besides, it'll grow in value because we don't have a steady state economy, right? We're supposed to always be growing So I find an integral part of the problem is how immediately we try to satisfy our appetites. There's no such thing as deferring, waiting, building up, planning our resources. How does that fit in with economic integrity from your point of view? Well, I think that that satisfy your appetites immediately thing is part of the the necessity of the growth economy. 
We've got to keep growing. We've got to keep having new markets. We've got to have more people willing to buy homes. We've got to have more products that people really see that they need right away. There's a juggernaut that's saying you have to satisfy your needs right away. It's part of what keeps the economy in its current form running. So this is the place where I think we need that slogan, just say no. Just say no to anything that's being advertised. I remember when my guys were little, we used to turn off the volume on the television and try to imagine what the ad was for. And we had a good time. It was kind of like taking some of that pull, the gravitational pull to need things away. That's a really a great strength that Quakers can bring to this conversation, I think. Our testimony of simplicity and this idea that we can say no, that we don't have to be pulled by that incredible advertising. It's got so many good minds figuring out how to lure us into feeling like we really need more and that we need it right away. And then that the mortgage thing, I just wanted to say that that's that thing about going into debt. So you're pulling people's real wealth You're kind of tricking them into putting their money down on something that they can't afford. And then you take that little bit of money that they had, and then you go and make a ton of money off of it and then go back and foreclose on their home. It's just a terrible thing that happens there. People are getting lured into that advertising that we need to take a stand against. I don't know if we did something particularly right in my family or not, I have a feeling that my son has his own personality, regardless of whatever influence I had on him. But when he was little, first watching television, his mom taught him that whenever a commercial came on, he should just sit there and say, no, thank you, no, thank you. Very polite, very nice. He'd just say, no, thank you, no, thank you. And when he was first receiving an allowance from me, he would have me not give him the allowance because he was afraid he'd spend it. He wanted me to bank it for him. So when he had some decision of something he really wanted to buy, he would request, you know, do I have enough money to buy a PlayStation 2? And he would get that money from me then if he wanted to. But he would defer that, and he made a number of such decisions along the way, or I'm sure he would have frittered his money away. His first semester at college, in those first three or four months, he spent only $4.13 of discretionary money. You know, that's unheard of, of course. So my question for you, Pamela, is how has being part of this economic integrity project and thinking about these issues, wrestling with them, how has it affected you and those in your family? I think it's the other way around that I was attracted to working in that group because this was an issue that was already really important to me. I'm just so deeply committed to not spending time and energy and money on stuff that we don't need and really thinking about how to be creative about not needing things and creative about repairing things and about producing our own things. It just seems like a critical part of what we need to do and what I will do. That's been part of my life I think it's been pretty much all my life has been that belief that that's really important. But Pamela, what if we put your life under a microscope and said, okay, how is integrity playing out? What would we find in your life that was a concrete difference? I'm looking for the kind of concrete examples of how economic integrity is showing up and how you conduct your life. No item of clothing that I'm wearing was bought new. That would be one thing, for example. We don't go on regular vacations. We don't eat out. I don't know exactly what you're asking, I guess. 
Well, where's your money invested? Is it, It's in a credit union, right? Our liquid assets I'm really pleased about. I feel like we did really well with our liquid assets. I share finances with somebody who has a somewhat different perspective from me. So our investments are not exactly the way I would wish them to be. I think that I have integrity work to do on some of our investments. Has this thinking affected which job you're willing to work? Well, the job that I'm doing is a job that I think is worth doing, that has value. I'm not doing it because of making big bucks at it. Working with childcare workers, you don't make big bucks. Would there be something bad, something wrong about taking a job that got big bucks? You have to be stronger around integrity. I think the lure is stronger so that you have to gird up your loins to deal with getting more money because it's a temptation. It's a lure. What are the products that the Friends Economic Integrity Project has produced? How can people access the learning, the group wisdom, the efforts, the mutual support? What can people access from the project from Philadelphia Yearly Meetings, Ecojustice Collaborative. Well, the most recent thing is a writing project that I worked on with three other folks. So Philadelphia Yearly Meeting has quite a bit of investments, and, and we were really hit hard by that 2008 recession and had to lay off staff and cut programs to the bone, and it was really a soul-searching and hard time. And for quite a few years, we were in this very an an uh, austerity-controlled financial situation. And then in 2014, we got the word that everybody had been waiting for. The stock market was going up, and our reserves had been replenished, and our income was tending to rise. And so as long as the stock market continued to rise, we could anticipate good financial reports. And we're thinking, oh, my gosh, the folks in our group – So the stock market growing means that the earth is ever more endangered, inequality grows, and we're hoping for that. What's wrong with this picture? And so um, we sat down and scratched our heads together and realized the extent that we're really entangled in this current situation for our security, our integrity. Again, we have less access to our integrity because we just are doing what it feels like we have to do to get what it feels like we have to have. So we took on a writing project that ended up being a book that was under the care of Quaker Institute for the Future. It's called Toward a Right Relationship with Finance, Interest, Debt, Growth, and Security. So that looks at how did we get into this mess And again, how did the economy shift to the point where everybody is individually scrambling for their own retirement? And what are alternative ways of thinking about security? And how do we think with integrity about our investments? And if we're thinking in big picture, what does security look like, not just in the financial context, but in a larger context? So that book is now available. That's the most recent contribution that we've made, trying to get people to both acknowledge the extent to which we are entangled in this system and begin to look for ways that we can step outside of it. Who exactly are the authors of that book? The lead author would be me, Pamela Haynes, Ed Treby, Charlie Blanchard, and David Kane. Are any of the authors economists? David is a Mary Knoll, a Catholic Mary Knoll, living in Brazil, And he has very, very strong economic background. And the rest of us are self-taught. I'll have a link on the Norton Spirit Radio website. 
what is the future for the Friends Economic Integrity Project? Are there more consequences of your work that are going on? What has this meant, for instance, in terms of Philadelphia Yearly Meeting? Is there a change in investments because of that? Well, that's a project that some of us are working on to get Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Again, when I was talking about you can shift at least a little bit, that Philadelphia Yearly Meeting now has a lot of our investments in a green fund, but we could take one step more and invest locally in community development investment corporations. And so there's a group of us that are working on a proposal to the Yearly Meeting to either push the Friends Fiduciary, which is a financial house that takes care of a lot of Quaker money, push them to offer more opportunities of different kinds of investment or to pull our money out of there and put it into more local investing. So that would be a practical thing that we're working on. Has there been anything in your life that you've changed because of having done this research? It's like you're looking at integrity for the world as a whole, but then you find the plank in your own eye instead of the speck over in their eye. Did anything like that affect you? Well, the thing that's coming to my mind is that I put money at work into an IRA, and the options are not great. You know, I talked with the financial advisor, and I have the best, most socially responsible option that's available in that group of folks. But it's really not good. It's not where it needs to be. So I could go back. I need to go back and talk to our HR person about where that money is and to push the envelope on the other options that I have about that money. Well, thanks for doing the self-examination as well as examining for our society as a whole, trying to engage in the conversation to lead us to a better world, a more sustainable world, and maybe a more ethical, moral world. I think all of those things are part of your work. And thank you for taking care of Nadine and her family in that period of transition, which allowed Sarah to become one of my friends over the years. Thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. And again, folks, we've been speaking with Pamela Haynes, who is part of the Eco-Justice Collective Friends Economic Integrity Project. You can find links on our site. Thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on this program. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.